I was being interviewed for Rolling Stone by this woman. And I said, you know, I got to go to a session now. <laughs> and, I, and I went to, she goes, where are you going? I said, a Steely Dan session. Oh, can I come? I said, yeah, yeah, come on. And I brought her in and she sat in. And then a few minutes later, you know, a little bit into it, I said, oh, this so-and-so from Rolling Stone. And Donald and Walter went apoplectic. They were like, grabbed me and pulled me outside. And said, are you crazy? He's <laughs> bringing Rolling Stone to the session. I said, they're doing a story on me. I mean, you, you seriously think they're not going to write about this? And sure enough, they were right. All right. Thanks for tuning in. You are listening to Gaucho Amigos. I'm Alex. Today, my guest is Rick Morata, the great drummer. Now, if you know anything about the history of Steely Dan, you know that in the later 70s, when they became a uh, studio-only band, they started amassing these almost all-star teams of session musicians for each and every individual track. And uh, among these musicians were some of the best drummers in the biz. You know, guys like Bernard Purdy, Jeff Percaro, uh, Steve Gadd. And one of these drummers was Rick Morata. You know, he was a real session specialist and uh, he played with everyone you can think of. You know, Aretha Franklin, Boz Skaggs, Warren Zevon, everyone, okay? And uh, I just wanted to say, you know, before I share my interview with Rick that, you know, when I started doing this podcast, the plan was really to focus on how Steely Dan's music was received, you know, not how it was made, by interviewing fans and friends and, you know, cultural critics and sort of younger musicians who were influenced by them. But uh, when I get an opportunity to interview someone who was there in the room, you know, with Donald and Walter on uh, those incredible albums like Asia and Gaucho, whether they produced or engineered or even played on it, you know, I'm not going to pass that up because for me, you know, it's historical. You know, it's almost like interviewing people who worked on the Apollo missions or the Manhattan Project. You know, I, I want to know what it was like and how it went down and what was the creative process and uh, just how the heck they made those amazing albums. So uh, especially anything to do with the making of Gaucho, you know, it's in the name of the podcast. So, you know, Rick Murata, he was very much involved. You know, he was the drummer on Hey 19, uh, on Time Out of Mind, uh, maybe uh, one of the Gaucho outtakes. You know, we touched on that in our conversation. Uh, he was also the drummer on uh, a few Royal Scam tunes, and uh, he was the drummer on Peg. I mean, come on, that's one of the most uh, legendary grooves of all time. So it was a real treat uh, and a great honor to get the chance to interview Rick. I really enjoyed getting to meet and talk to him. You know, he was a very nice guy, uh, very gregarious. So without further ado, this is my conversation with Rick Murata. Enjoy. There's some people that just hate Steely Dan. You know, it's yacht rock. It's this. <laughs> they just uh, they just don't get it. And 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 I get that. I really do. I, I I you know, there's no accounting for taste, as Don Grolnick used to say. And everybody has their own uh, vision of this stuff. So um, yeah, but uh, God bless all these fans and fanatical fans, and more power to them. You know, I think it's great that they. I think it's great that they really like great music because I think stuff that I haven't worked on with them, all their stuff, I think is pretty great. 
Did you dig them even before you started working with them, like in the earlier days? Well, that's that's an interesting story. I wasn't really aware of them. You know, I was so New York and I was just working really hard and I started really late as a drummer. And the if you want to know the story, I've said it many times, but the story, the original story of how I worked with them was I worked a lot in New York with Elliot Shine. And I got a call from, I think it was Radio Registry or somebody saying, we have a session, uh, a couple of sessions, a series of sessions booked for you with the band Steely Dan. And I was so busy at the time, I turned them down. You know, I didn't know who they were, really. And I get a call from Elliot Shiner, and literally, literally, this is the call. Um, Rick, it's Elliot. Hey, Els, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. Are you doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing great. Well, are you nuts? I said, what are you talking about? I <laughs> call to do Steely Dan's record, and you turned it down. And they said to me, you know, Rick Murata turned, said he wouldn't do it. And I said, well, yeah, man, I'm so busy. He goes, can you say anything on this podcast? Is it the... Anything. I, he said, okay, you're a fucking idiot. You're gonna be, <laughs> I told them, I said, no, he didn't turn it down. Be there. And he told me when and where the sessions were. And Elliot and I were so close. Um, we we're so, such good friends. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's oh, a yeah. very, very powerful force on Steely Dan, Steely Dan Records as the engineer. And um, and he did a lot more than engineer records. And he he said he told me where to be A and R Seventh uh, Avenue, where he worked all the time. I said, oh okay, all right, I'll be there. And that's how it started. I would not have I would not have really done the session if it weren't for Elliot calling me and saying you better show up because you're really stupid. And uh, and he was really right. As stupid as I was, I had heard their music, but I didn't even know who they were. I walked into the session and Donald was the first person I saw. He was noodling at the piano and he came over to me and he said, oh, Rick, I'm, I'm Donald Fagan and I'm uh, really, it's really nice to meet you and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, kid, okay, good. That's great. Let me just go get the drums all sorted out and everything. And he said, you know, we're real big fans. We really like your playing. And I was appreciative. And then we started running through the first song we were going to do. Very first song, which was Don't Take Me Alive. And I just sat down and he's playing and, and Larry Carlton was there. Cleaning, I think, I think Chuck Rainey, Larry Carlton, and, and I think Paul Griffin might've been there. And Larry was always cleaning the neck of his guitar. <laughs> and and uh, Donald started playing and singing. We all started playing. They counted it off. And we got, we got like, we didn't even get into the, we didn't even get to the chorus. And I stopped playing. I go, what the hell are you? What is this about? <laughs> and, and Donald stopped. And we took a break. And Donald pulled me aside. And he just as great. This has really made me, really made me like him and them a lot. He explained that song to me. Really? Very conversationally. He said, yeah. I said, well, because it starts out agents of the law, luckless pedestrians. You're there with megaphones or whatever it is with rage in your eyes and your megaphones. And and it's all about this guy in a shootout with the police. I go, what the fuck? Are you guys nuts? <laughs> Just, he goes, 
well, you know, Rick, we we were doing, we were working here, and then we went to L.A. because our record label, the label was there. Somebody wanted them out there, and they were, I think they were living out in Malibu, renting a place. And he said, and every weekend, and I remember this is a long time ago. This is before you were born, probably. But every weekend, he said, and it was true. There yeah. was a shootout because there was then there were these there were these all these protest groups, and there were the 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 black liberation army and all all these different things and he'd say every week there's some guy all up in his house in a shootout with the police and it was never good it never ended well in yeah. la it was it was like oh my god it was just at that time it was like you you didn't go up against the police it was it was murder you would get you'd get killed yeah. and that's what that song was about and that that was what endeared me to them right then i thought okay uh, this is gonna this is really good because the songs you know i was so used to going to a session and it was a song that had i love you you love me let's get there <laughs> and love each other and that's all about love and i was kind of sick of it or it was disco music and you know we were in we were in recording studios every single day at that time yeah so that's the the long story about how it started with steely dan it was all it was all it was all orchestrated by um, Elliot Shiner and, uh, and and I thank him for that every time I talk about this stuff because it really it really was a very rewarding musical experience for me. So it was uh, kind of a breath of fresh air when you got to Steely Dan. You've been doing all these other sessions, and a lot of it was kind of the same old, same old. But yeah. then you hear these words, you know, yeah. agents of the law, luckless pedestrians, and you knew this was something different. This was something special. Yeah, yeah. And I love those kind of songs. You know, they're they're not, you know, they're they're not cookie cutter songs. It's like when I worked with Warren Zevon, everything out of his mouth was just no one said what he said ever, uh, and and that's what. With with Donald and Walter, I we were I was very close with them both, and every time we walked in, I walked in the studio. I was it's like that was our social life, you know. You walk in and you were with guys that were your friends, guys for your friends are playing on the record, and Donald and Walter did not act like there was somebody else. They were it was like a band in the room, mm -hmm. really, because they would come out with charts. But the charts were sort of sketched out. Like the first time I remember I walked in, I can't remember who the arranger was for Don't Take Me Alive, but we had done, we cut like three tracks that night. And Don't Take Me Alive was charted, you know, by, by an arranger, conductor. But as soon as everybody played, I mean, you look at the guys on these records and everybody has their own personality. And I always say this in interviews, when, when people ask me, what's what was your approach to success my approach to doing records because i did a lot of records and you when you do records you have to be in new york you had to be very very versatile and very flexible so i learned in recording studios with guys like dave spinoza um andy newmark and steve gad and rob mouncey and guys like that i learned about flexibility because you had to be you had to be um Diverse. You had to be able to play a lot of different things. 
And so my approach was like an actor. Okay. Mm. If someone pulled a chart out, if someone gave me a chart, my reading was shitty anyway, because I didn't, I wasn't like Vinnie Cal, you know, Steve, Steve used to read what we used to call fly shit. You know, I would look at it and I'd, I'd look at the chart and I'd, I'd suss it out. I remember Bernard Purdy used to tell me, he'd say, Rick, look at the, look at the edge, look at the sections, look at the edge of, end of the sections. Cause he goes, usually they'll write a fill or something. He goes, look at those and then go back and play you. So hmm. you create character as a, right. as a, as a musician for me, it's like reading a script. There are words, let's say it's, I'm an actor, I'm reading, there are words there. If you ever saw actor auditions for a part, it's really interesting for a musician to watch actors because if you watch a bunch of really good actors, they all read the same part very differently. It's just like musicians. They're going to play the same part very differently if they have anything really going on in here. And that's what I tried to do. And I did that with them, and they they really liked that. Uh, they really liked that. They were never do this, don't ever do this. You know, the only time it would get weird was would be when Walter. Sometimes I would come in with a weird snare drum, and I remember when we did Peg, I had the snare drum which I'm still looking for. I have an <laughs> idea what it might be. Somebody lifted it someplace, but it was a. It was originally, I got it from Frank Ippolito. It was a wooden Slingerland snare drum I got from Frank, and who was good friends with Buddy Rich, and it was Buddy Rich's snare drum. Oh, wow. Uh, and so I took it home, and I, I used to work on drums a lot back then, and I took the throws off, and I, uh, I, I don't know if you, you probably don't care about drums and stuff, but I took the throws off. I put Ludwig throws on it. Okay. Drum and I put a Canasonic head on it. At the time, Canasonic sent me some heads to try out, and I put this head on it, which was this odd kind of head. And I brought it to the session to play on Asia, on the Asia. And Donald, I mean Walter, was walking back and forth behind me, going, "I don't know about that snare drum." <laughs> and, and and Elliot and 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 Donald would were like that sounds good in here it sounds good but 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 Walter was walking in the room behind me just listening to it acoustically oh, that wow. was the snare drum and on on Peg I never played any fills except for tap 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 on the snare on that snare drum because I was so focused on the sound of that drum I really liked it yeah. but that's where they would get that's where they would go oh that the bass part doesn't sound so great or the bass sound isn't so great or the, or the, the guitar sound isn't so great or the drum sound isn't so great. They would really focus on those things. If you're playing great, they would just, that was, you didn't care what was on, they didn't care what was on paper. Okay. You know, those guys, the guys that do Steely Dan sessions were such good musicians yeah. that it didn't matter what you wrote. If they interpreted it their way, Don Gronick, Paul Griffin, Larry Carlton, forget Larry. I mean, he yeah. was, and 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 Hugh McCracken and uh, <laughs> uh, Steve Kahn. I mean, and a lot of times when I worked with them, it was me and and uh, Chuck Rainey, and we just had a shorthand. Chuck and I played together so much at the time. Yeah. So anyway, so that was that was what it was like working on on uh, with them for me. 
Yeah. Great fun, always laughing. They were very, very, very funny guys. You yeah. can tell from there, they're, they're very dark and very funny. Like if you listen to their records, <laughs> you don't know whether to to like curl up in fetal position or break out laughing, bust out laughing because they're so smart. Yeah. Yeah, it comes through in their music. Also their interviews. I don't know if you've ever read them, but there's a, there's a handful of them where it's just like they get into a groove where they're kind of almost doing like a comedy routine. Back in a thousand off yeah. each other. They were very fun. What do you think uh, Donald heard in your drumming style that made him want to work with you? Right? Because he kind of handpicked you. He said, I, I heard what you, you know, I heard, I heard, I like your playing. I want to bring you in for Royal Scam. What do you think it was? Do you know? Or just that you were kind of a regular at the time? Honestly, I don't know. It wouldn't matter <laughs> that you were a regular. He, they they yeah. were very, they were very, um, um, what is it? They had standards. Yeah, their standards. There were some people they just didn't want to work with that were great guys, right? Because they're playing, and I remember them mentioning a couple to me, very critical of their playing. And there were guys I liked. I liked them as players, and I liked them as people. But they were not interested. It's not that they didn't like them as people or liked them. They didn't think their their style of playing fit them. Like right. for example. Um, they loved Jeff Carl, but who didn't? I yeah. mean, I don't know anybody that didn't love Jeff Carl. I love Jeff Carl. Um, they loved Jim Keltner. They loved Ed Green. They they had, and they're all completely different styles. If you listen sure. to Ed Green and you listen to Jim Keltner, they don't even. They're not even on the same. They don't. They don't play anything alike, and both are great players. So they, I don't know what it was. I think that I, I was very funky back then. But who's funkier than than Bernard Purdy? I don't, <laughs> I don't know of anybody that's funkier than Bernard. But I could play as a as a white guy. I could play that stuff really well because that's where I cut my teeth. And I, I, I was always in R and B bands until I was a rock and roll player. I was in a lot of R&B bands and I started with with Dave Spinoza in R&B bands back when we were kids because we grew up in the same area as we've been friends since we were like 14 or 15 years old. And then um and those so are the songs you ended up playing on with Steely Dan are the ones that were maybe less rock and roll and a little bit more like right Peg Time Out of well, Mind Hey 19 those are almost R&B songs in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, but don't take me alive. It's funny I yeah. was at the gym this morning and <laughs> listening into music on the treadmill and uh, up pops don't take me alive and i go i, I gotta go do this i gotta go do this thing today this podcast <laughs> and i started listening to don't take me alive and i was i was so thankful at that moment for having played on that record because i just think it was really good i think that i think that Larry Carlton was just amazing on it. And and uh, uh, Chuck, I think Chuck Rainey played bass, amazing. I played, and I, and I just, they let me play these fills, which they weren't that, you know, they weren't that into those kind of, you know, those kind of, they, I was, it was open. There was right. a lot of straight drum parts, but a lot of inside stuff going on and these tom-tom fills. And until Asia... I don't remember them doing too much of that. When 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 it, when Steve played on Asia, I mean everything 
everything changed and that would <laughs> that changed music yeah and you know in, in general um when you go to um to that saxophone solo and drum solo in the middle of the, this incredible song incredible song breaks into this stuff i mean they were just they were very innovative guys so did they give you direction on Royal Scam, like on uh, Don't Take Me Alive or everything you did? Did they give you any direction about what they were looking for? Or they just kind of, they gave you the charts and then it was, they kind of let you take it from there. Yeah, they were very trusting. It wasn't like they gave you direction. It was basically you're fired. <laughs> you know, you go and play. They, they might say something, you know, they might say, oh, don't. You know, you know, we don't we don't really want it to be too busy here or we don't want it to get. I think one of the things they liked about me was I was very simple player, really simple. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, they you would play it a lot of times, a lot. You would play it, you know, over and over and over and over and over and over. And they were very, very, very patient. And then you were gone and there was somebody else playing it. It was, it could have been, I, I said this in the making of Asia documentary that they did. They would have a whole other, they wouldn't like bring in another guitar player. They bring in a whole other band, a different drummer, different keyboard player, different guitar player, different everything. It was just, they, they liked mixing things up like that. And they were very, that's why it's hard to say, did they give you a, too much or a lot of direction? They really, I don't remember them being too nitpicky with me at all. Interesting. Uh, I mean, I just remember they're very nitpicky. I mean, right. that's, but I never knew what it was. That were, I usually, I'm the kind of guy when I go in and I choose that character I'm going to be when I play, 90% yeah. of the time, that's where I'm stuck. I'm there. That's what I start to develop. I'm developing that character you're getting in that actor's mindset that you were talking about yes yes and that's the character i'm going for got it and it's hard to jump out for me it really is Question about uh, Peg on uh, Asia. Uh, somebody leaked a demo of Steve Gadd on that track. Did you know that he also tried to do it before you? No, but I, I had a long conversation with him last night. Oh, we, yeah? we were catching up for the new year. Yeah. Uh, Steve and I remain very close. And, uh, you know, I've known him since his first kids were born, um, uh, Mary Beth and, and Megan, and, and through the births of his uh, his other kids Duke and Carl, I uh, I did not know that. Now I did know. It's always a funny story I tell. I knew that Keltner played on Peg. Oh, he did. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe I, it's mislabeled. Maybe it's Keltner because I I just found it on YouTube. It was like Peg with Steve Gadd's drums. Somebody leaked it like a demo. I, I you know <laughs> send it to me. I'd love I to hope. hear. Yeah, sure. <laughs> because I might be I might be able to tell if it was Steve. You know, it very well could have been Steve because yeah. we were working on the Asia album and in LA, I mean in New York. Yeah. And Steve could have been Steve did Asia right. at I did he do wait. 
I think he did that out here. Shit. I don't remember. It was such a long time ago. But I know that Keltner played on it because I I tell the story and I still I still res Keltner about it. Um I was at the I was arriving at the airport in Los Angeles to come in to do some work on some record. And 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 as I got to baggage claim, you know, I was going to get my symbols and I used to always travel with symbols and sometimes a um uh, a trap case. And I was at I was at baggage claim, LAX, it's in the 70s. And uh I get this tap. I turn around and I look and and there's Kelton standing there, and his wife, Cynthia, is in the van, the car outside with the gate open. He was coming or going, same place. He was, but not on the same flight as me, but we just happened to be in the same baggage claim area. And Kellner hits me on the shoulder. He goes, points at me, he goes, hey, man, you know, that should have been me on Peg. <laughs> on Peg, that should have been me. And I looked at him and I said, it was already out and it was a big hit, single. You know, it was like record and song of the year or something. The album was record of the year, and that was song of the year. And I looked at him and I said, I just remember saying, yeah, but it wasn't. It was me. <laughs> and he, he was so, he was sort of bent out of shape, but he was he was great about it. He was just, he was busting my balls about it, really. But but uh, doesn't surprise me if Steve played on it, and it wouldn't surprise me if 10, eight drummers played different yeah. versions of it. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Well, Keltner ended up on uh, Josie, which was a pretty big song. So it wasn't a complete loss, right? Didn't he? No, not, not a loss at all. And he yeah. played great on it. Did you play on any other Asia tracks that you remember? Me? Yeah. Don't remember. Okay. See, here, the thing is with them, there we cut a lot of songs that never showed up on any records. Yeah. Like, I remember, I can remember playing on a song and leaving the studio and it not being on the record. I don't know what album we were working on. It might've been eight. I think I know actually, cause I was going to ask you about that when you get to Gaucho, cause I have an idea of what it is. We can talk about it now, actually, if you want. Well, is it Cooley Baba? Yeah. Yeah. That's you, Good right? Problem. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I, honestly, I remember playing Cooley Baba in the studio and going, that was intense. It was so good. First of all, the song was great. I started to ask Donald and Walter about it after we were done. And and uh, so I, I listened to one version. I just happened to be, somebody's posted something or something about Kuli Baba. And I always, you know, I never really asked them much. I, if I said to them, why didn't you? Why is Cooley Baba not on the record? They would just go, uh, uh, they would mumble something. <laughs> um, but uh, I always remembered Cooley Baba. Now, now, let me tell you something. I must have cut 10 or more songs with them that I never saw the light of day. Wow. Uh, I remember when we did, the night we did um, uh, uh, Don't Take Me Alive, I think we did another track that was on the album, and we did a ballad. That was really good. I never heard of, I never don't even know what the name of it was. All I know is I remember playing it and I don't remember anything back then because everything was a blur, one session after another. Cooley Baba, I remember when we played Cooley Baba, it got 
to this instrumental section and it just took off. It just, it lit up. Yeah. And, and, and I don't mean tempo wise. It, I mean, it just went from this, this, this um, verse and chorus um, to this thing just, just jumped. And we were, yeah. the whole band was on fire. Now, what I heard, I heard there are several versions of Cooley Baba that are in basement tapes or 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 whatever. Some yeah. uh, somebody wrote something about maybe one of the assistant engineers had it and released, you know, put it out. Or, or, somewhere, yeah, there's somewhere. this there's this thing called the Lost Gaucho, which is a collection of all these different demos, you know, from I, somebody sent me that. Yes, yeah. somebody sent me that. And I watched and I listened to that. I don't know that a hundred percent of it is accurate, but I do know that when they mentioned Kulibaba, I don't know if that's me on that Kulibaba track or not because I think it I, is. And I'll tell you why. Because it opens with this little hi hat thing that sounds a little yeah. bit like what you were doing on Peg. Like this Yeah. It sounds yeah. like you, honestly. So well that, that was my be, guess. But but the other part that then 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 they might have edited because what I kind of remember and I could be wrong because my you know this is a lot of stuff as I said going on back then, but I kind of remembered I had this symbol I used all the time this ride symbol, and I remember on the outro we got into this thing where it was on fire and my between my right hand and my foot and my left hand it wasn't busy it was just it was just, I remember looking around while we're playing. I can, I can still remember looking at the guys in the band. It was like we we're on stage because we used to do a lot of gigs at McKell's, you know, a lot of, a lot of intense. That was a lot of, 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 of practice for us would be playing this crazy shit. It was fire. It was literally fire. You could, you know, if you, I used to, I used to have this vision when the groove was really, really, really good. If, a truck came at us it would be like a semi hitting a brick wall they're not going to get through this wall and i don't hear that on that i'd hear what you you heard and i listen to it and i go yeah that sounds like something because i'm that was one of my go-to things like you hear it in in um in uh don't take me alive and i think you hear it in peg i would go to this little interlude hi-hat yeah. thing and they liked it yeah. they always liked those little those quiet interlude things because because they were very because of the 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 way they played, uh, Donald would come up with these crazy chords, and the way he would voice them, they could right. be heard. Now that's one of the that's one of the the things that diss on 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 Steely Dan is people talk about how their jazz chords and stuff they're crazy. They're just brilliant voicings of chords. Like Peg, I never knew that Peg was basically a blues thing until. <laughs> later and then and then i go and then, and then you, you read about the voicings that 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 donald played and what people played around it it just it's maddening to think that people just don't recognize the uniqueness um and they call it something it's not because it doesn't fit their description of what rock and roll should be i guess in quotes or yeah
How did you feel about the whole Wendell thing? You know, how they basically took your drum parts and then fed it into a computer. What was your feeling that's about that? Of, that's, my feeling about it was, well, first of all, let me tell you exactly. Let me tell you my memory of, 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 of Gaucho. Okay? Yeah. We didn't do it where we normally worked. If I can remember correctly. Now, my memory is a little off, but I do remember this. I remember Donald calling me and saying, I think we were I think we went to dinner. I think we were out to dinner or something. Maybe I was with both of them. But it was they wanted to talk to me. And we were out somewhere. We were, but we were together. And they said, We're going in, we're gonna do this record. And we want you to come play on a record. I said, forget it. And they go, What? I said, you know, here's the deal. We go into the studio. I'm I'm an intense guy. And when I do this stuff, I go in and I, I look at whatever they wrote or whatever the song is, he plays it. And my instantly try to, what I told you earlier, create this character. I instantly try to come up with a part, a part that's going to fit the song. I don't care how simple or complicated it is. You know, there's something, if I get into that headspace, that, and that goes for me, my attention span is like, I have the attention span of a gnat sometimes <laughs> when it comes to that stuff. Yeah. And when we would go in and we'd cut some of these tracks, they, I said, yeah, I don't want to go in there. And we work really hard. And then the next thing you know, the record comes out and it's not even me playing drums. And they just rolled. I've, I've got so many guys I worked with. I have memory of them rolling their eyes at anything that, you know, something would come out of my mouth. And so I remember Donald said, well, what do you, what would you want? What would you do? I said, I don't know. I just want to get it done. He said, yeah. how about, we go in, just me and you. Okay. What do you mean? He said, just me and you. I'll play piano, sing. We got the songs. They're always prepared. And you play. They're simple. Okay. So I think we went to Automated in New York on 44th Street. I'm, I'm trying to remember the best I can, Alex. I, I, and, and we had a click up and we played. I think we got two songs done in three hours. Yeah. Not, this is unheard of. So the whole Wendell thing, I got to say, I don't even pay it any attention because Wendell was basically Roger sitting in a room with the computer. To me, he would sometimes take the life out of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Okay. But he was very technically oriented, technically yeah. minded. And he, you know, I didn't feel I didn't feel at any threat from that because we had to play the parts. Those are my parts. I'm playing I'm playing the drums. Oh, then yeah. I see I see things where it says hey 19 or time out of mind or something Rick Morata and Wendell. Fuck Wendell. <laughs> Fuck. That wasn't fucking Wendell. You don't have Wendell playing you don't have Wendell playing on Asia. Wendell's not playing Peg. I don't give a shit. That was those are parts that that we came up with. I came up with. Kellner came up with. Carl came up with. Wendell. I didn't get the whole thing, but I do remember. Sometimes I do remember. We'd be doing a play. We'd be listening back, right? And you'd see Donald 
and Walter's sitting there, but I just remember Donald doing this going, you know, in the chorus, in the third bar, the second backbeat didn't sound exactly like the <laughs> other. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Seriously? <laughs> and this is the conversation that Roger would drum up with mm. Wendell. And maybe they would go in and replace a snare drum sound, you know, so it would be exactly equal to the other one. But I never paid attention to the whole Wendell thing. I never okay. paid any attention to it at all because we had these parts. So then, so now, but 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 to be really clear, my memory is going in. I, I remember this because um my friend, my girlfriend at the time came in and picked me up at the session and she hung out. And we were in and out, three hours, gone. Two tracks. That's not, you don't understand. We left Peg, when we cut Peg, I think I left the studio at 3 o'clock in the morning. Gronick and I left together yeah. at about 3 a.m. And I think Don came to stay with me in my apartment in New York right. um, uh, that night. Um, it just didn't happen. And here we went in, the, I think we went in the afternoon or the evening, and we played these two tracks, and we had a click track, me, Donald, Donald played, Donald sang. That was it. Now, I have heard some outtakes. The weirdest things show up. I mean, really the weirdest things. These outtakes with my voice on it, talking, and in the studio saying, I'm not playing that again. I hope you got it, because I'm not, something like that, yeah. on Time Out of Mind or right. Hey 19. One of those. But it's me playing. It's not Wendell playing. Yeah, It's me. It's time and, out of mind. I've heard that. And and I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> wait, was I in the room with a bunch of other guys playing this? No, it's just me and Donald. So maybe they went, maybe they kept that and they would play that when other guys were overdubbing, because there was a lot of overdubbing going on back then. They did obviously on Peg, there's if they throw up one more guitar player's solo, it yeah. would be another hour's worth of <laughs> Of uh, of of watching that, that uh, making of Asia, but yeah. um, I never paid any attention to Wendell. I didn't pay any attention to Roger. Uh, Roger and I had a little on on Walter's album. I remember we were working specifically on Walter's record at at um, uh, uh, Motown here in Los Angeles, uh -huh. and um, and well, and on this record, Roger was engineering. You know, Roger never engineered any of the records that I can remember him doing it. always I always saw Elliot Shiner except for when we were at automated I don't know who was there when we did hey 19 and peg I mean hey 19 and time out of mind but um we were working on a track for for Walter and we cut the track and it was really good really good and I there was a the intro oddly enough you mentioned it earlier the intro was me playing this hi-hat part hi-hat bass drum part Maybe a snare drum, but it was definitely 16 notes on the hi-hat, but with accents, moving accents. And I go, we came in, we listened back, and Walter goes, that sounds great. This is great. And I said, you know what? It's, I really like the track, but the intro, I played something. I stepped on myself a little bit. Mm. I want to just punch in like one bar in the intro. It's like a four-bar drum intro. Just drums, no bass, nothing else. If I remember correctly, Roger goes, "Can't do that." What are you talking about? You can't do that. 
I go, of course you could do it. And he stood up from the chair and he stepped away. He goes, you do it. I said, okay. I called over the assistant engineer and I said, do me a favor, group the drums. Show me the group for the drums. Group them right here. And the assistant grouping the drums. I go, when I go in there, I want you to, on this bar here, punch record, here, punch out. And as soon as I said that, Roger goes, I'll do it. And he pushed, you know, pushed me aside, pushed the, uh, the assistant aside. I mean, it took two seconds. Yeah. And that was the kind of thing that I okay. didn't want. I didn't, okay. you know, I fucking spent enough time in a recording studio to know. I yeah. know my I'm sitting, I'm, I'm sitting in an engineer's chair here. I know what to do. Yeah. Um, that stuff bothered me. That's and Wendell. Wendell was Wendell. Just was like, I'm sorry. If they want to take out a bar, and and say, well, he didn't play that bar exactly the way he played the last bar. Who cares? You still played that bar anyway. If they want to take a snare drum that Wendell recorded, basically Wendell was, I, you know, it was like what we do now. You get, I could pull up. 25 snare drum sounds right now. Yeah, it was the beginning of that. It was kind of the first one, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wendell. But you saw it and as an impediment to your creative process, or you know, I didn't think of it at all. No, okay. I never. So it was just I never. I never said. Yeah. That's going to take my job. I yeah. just didn't look at it that way. Bernard Purdy didn't look at it that way either. You think? Yeah. You listen to to <laughs> Royal Skim. You think that's Wendell? You listen to you listen to um, Babylon Sisters. You think that's Wendell? Come on, man. Yeah, I mean, but you're still credited on the album. It just says drums, Rick Murata. It doesn't say and Wendell, at least on my copy. So, and in my oh, mind, there's, you're there's still some, the drummer. Somewhere there's what <laughs> somebody sent me a sweatshirt that somebody <laughs> made. Yeah. Right? She, this friend of mine sent me a picture. She goes, Look at this. And it's a picture of a guy, this guy. He's wearing a sweatshirt. She's at a party and he's wearing a sweatshirt that says, Steely Dan drummers, and there's yeah. my picture, Gad's picture, I think Keltner's picture, Jeff Picaro's picture, and underneath it has what they played on, right? Yeah, you know, Steve Gad, Asia, Rick Murata, um, and it has, um, uh, and it has a list of songs, and under one of them it says, um, Rick Murata and Wendell on, I want, and I'm like, oh, I want to burn that fucking sweatshirt. <laughs> Uh, so you hate sharing the credit with Wendell because it was really just you. I don't think that I don't hate sharing credit. I just think it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Wendell's not playing those parts. It's true. It's true. I, it's funny because I, I don't think of it as Wendell. I, I think the reason people give credit to Wendell is just because it was an innovation in sort of studio recording. Not I don't think anyone's thinking, oh, wow, Wendell did. Roger was a tech head. Roger yeah. was a tech head who sat in a little room off to the side at 52nd Street, and he had um, he had this computer, and he was great at it. Don't yeah. get me wrong. Yeah. He was great at that stuff. I mean, that's, this is what he did. He lived uh -huh. for it. But come on, man. Give me a fucking break. Yeah, so too, too much technical, too much too computer much wizardry. Yeah. Yeah. For your, for your trailer liking. Well, yeah, you I mean, know, that, that record sounds amazing. Even to this day, it sounds like so great and pristine. I throw it on. It doesn't sound old or dated at all. Oh, those I'm guys. Not, yeah. I mean, it couldn't be. That is one of the, that's another knock on them is that how, how, um, 
how clean everything is. You know, yeah. it's just, and I get that too. I mean, it's like, okay, it's clean, but the downside is it's clean. The upside is it's clean. <laughs> it's a double-edged sword. I mean, what are you going to do in yeah. a situation like that? What do you do? What do you do? I, I get it. I like dirt. I'm listening. You yeah. listen to stuff. I, some of them, my favorite stuff is the trashiest yeah. stuff I could possibly. The drums sound like trash. The track sounds like trash. It's great. That's some of my favorite playing on other records. Um, that's not what Steely Dan is about. Right. You know, interestingly, on Nightfly, I remember talking to a friend of mine, really, really, really good musician, who knows all these guys as well, who didn't play on these records, but who really knows a lot. And he said with, I think it was Nightfly or Kermacurion, he said to me, he once brought it to my attention, he goes, Rick, the problem with this is it's so clean that it sounds like some of the life is running out of it. Now, it's not me. I didn't say that. I'm just saying, and this is a guy who I respect. And I said, and you know, that's Steve Jordan playing. It's, Jordan is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Um, and and I just thought, yeah, you know, I kind of, I got to have, I kind of have to agree with some, sometimes it's a little too much. But you know what? That's not my record. It's, Steely Dan's record and it's Donald's record. It's actually Donald's was a little cleaner, I thought, than Steely Dan. Yeah. Well, I mean, for years, people, that was a knock against them. Like, I, I think punks really didn't like Steely Dan for a long time because of the clean thing and also just yeah. like all the jazziness. It, it was it was too fussy. There's too much work. You know, to them, rock and roll should be, you know, you know, quick and dirty. Um, but I've noticed in recent years, the tide is kind of coming back the other way where actually a lot of people like in sort of like the hipster music world have a tremendous amount of respect and, and love of Steely Dan because they can now recognize, you know, what they were trying to do with those records, you know, that they, they're full of, you know, interesting chord voicings and witty lyrics. And, you know, they, they start to recognize the artistry beyond the sort of first impression of it being like yeah. a clean sounding album. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I don't really know um, enough about who was doing what, but I credited the voicings a lot to Donald because he's the guy I saw playing all the time. That's yeah. why I gave him the credit. And he, you listen to the piano voicings and he's, you know, and actually Larry Carlton pulled my coat yeah. about it. Larry and I were working on something, some other thing together. And he turned to me and he said, man, he goes, it's so interesting when you listen to people try to emulate the same kind of voicings and style that Donald, that they, that they get with Steely Dan and it doesn't work. <laughs> and I asked him about it. I said, yeah. what is that about? He goes, Rick, it's, it's, un, it's kind of like in the netherworld where the, there's certain things that, that when you, when you'd see Donald play them, you go, and, and by the way, Larry was that way with voicings as well. Don Gronick was that way with too, with, with voicings, 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 voicings. That was it. Because I mean, like Spinoza used to say to me, there's just a few notes on the piano, on, right. on the instrument that we're playing. But how you put those notes together, and they were brilliant at it. They were. Donald they still are. You know, Donald is, 
on his soul. They're brilliant guys. nicely that I can only say well, take all a right. fucking bite. <laughs> 